It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. I'm Mark Feinzan, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. Logan White is in his fourth season with the San Diego Padres, serving as the team's senior advisor to the general manager and director of player personnel. White joined San Diego in October of 2014 after spending 13 seasons with the Dodgers, running a very successful amateur scouting department that drafted Clayton Kershaw, Matt Kemp, and Russell Martin, among many others. More than 50 players selected under White's watch reached the majors with the Dodgers, while he also played an integral role in Los Angeles' signing of international stars, including Yasiel Puig, Hiroki Kuroda, and Takashi Saito. I sat down with White to discuss the differences between domestic scouting and international scouting, the importance of bloodlines in baseball, and much more. Enjoy this conversation with Logan White of the San Diego Padres. Here with Logan White, Padres Senior Advisor to the General Manager and Director of Player Personnel. Logan, thanks for taking the time. Appreciate it. Well, thank you, Mark. I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. So, you were born in Missouri. You grew up on a ranch in New Mexico. No real big major league presence in New Mexico to speak (laughs) of. Uh, What was your team growing up? My, my, team, my baseball team was actually the Cincinnati Reds uh, when I was a kid. I used to love watching Tony Perez and Concepcion and all of those guys, or at least reading about them. I was always a big reader. Um, and then I would say as I kind of grew in the part of New Mexico where I was raised, uh, back then you had the uh, station out of Atlanta. So I was like a lot of people, it was supposedly at the time, Atlanta, you know, America's team. America's and, team, that's and it. I, and I, wa- I watched a lot of the, the Atlanta Braves. Yeah, that seems to be, for anybody who wasn't raised in or near a major league town, the Braves seemed to be the answer, just because that was the team you got to see on the regular basis. That was exactly right. And they had some rough years along the way, and I still, <laughs> back at that time frame, and still love watching them and everything, and watching the great players and pitchers, because that was my only access, because I never actually even had the ability to go to a major league baseball game until actually I was in college. Wow. Yeah. Um, turn, TBS back then was basically Braves baseball and NWA wrestling, and that was pretty much the extent of their <laughs> yeah, programming. That was, that was it, correct. Uh, you played baseball at Western New Mexico University, graduated with honors, academic All-American in 1984. Uh, how did your college experience as a player help you as you embarked on a baseball career? Well, I think a lot of things. I think first off, you, you anytime you play a team sport and you're with other people and you have a common goal to try to go win a conference title, conference tournament, and, and advance to playoffs and things like that, I think that's a huge thing in, in learning and then it'll help set you up later down the road for when you're with you know people and you're still in a, pe- a team concept. You're not playing now, but now you're in an office role or whatever you're doing. You're working with your scouts or anything. So I think just being in college, being able to play and be around the team and focus with the team and learn the team concept uh, helped me a lot. Because you know no matter how good you are, you're only the team's only as good as the, as the whole of the group. The Mariners selected you in the 23rd round of the 84 draft as a reliever. Uh, you were 5-12, 434 ERA, 116 games over three years in their system. You're the scout. Give me a scouting report on yourself. <laughs> well, I was drafted by a scout named Jeff Melnoff, and a great guy. He drafted Harold Reynolds and a lot of big player, big league players, and, and I told him, I said, I guess I was one of his few failures. But um, <laughs> I definitely do not look for players that threw like I did. Uh, I, I think I had more heart than I had, than I had ability. Um, and I think that's what's helped me in my work to this day. I'm a competitor and have a lot of heart. Um, but I look for guys with a lot better tools than I had. <laughs> was it was it tough after three years in the minors to face the end of your playing career, knowing that you'd never reach the goal that every minor league player has, and that's getting to the big leagues? Yeah, it was really hard because as a kid growing up, that was my whole dream was to play in the big leagues and be a, be a great big league player, not just good, but great. And then... Uh, you realize that you're not going to achieve that goal. It was about a year. It was really hard for me. I didn't really want to watch baseball even, uh, and I was working on my master's degree uh, at Eastern New Mexico University. I was teaching school at the time. Junior high, right? Yeah, junior high. And so I, it, it was hard for about a year to accept the fact that I wasn't going to fulfill that dream because I looked on it as a, upon it as, a, as I failed. And not only for myself, but I felt like, especially because I come from a small community that 
thought I was going to make it. Um, and you carry the weight of a lot of people with you too, you know, from your community back home and everything else. And you feel like you let them down. And that was the hard part for me. So you're teaching English and communications in a junior high school. You're right. getting your master's. Uh, in 1988, you become an associate scout with the Mariners. What made you decide to take the scouting route? Well, you know, when I when I I had I had a shoulder surgery, so and I tried to come back from it, I couldn't come back from it. And Jeff Melnoff was a farm director at the time, and he offered me to become a pitching coach, but I couldn't throw BP, and I knew I wasn't ready to do that. So I said, I'm going to go back and work on my master's degree, and uh, and teach school, and that and that's what I did. And he says, well, how about scouting? And I hadn't thought of scouting. And then he says, why don't you be a bird dog? And you live in a remote area like New Mexico where there's not a lot of players. Scouts don't get there often, but I'll connect you with our scout, Joe Henderson. And so I connected with Joe Henderson, and I basically kind of looked over New Mexico for him while I was doing it and, and found that I, I enjoyed going watching players play and seeing if uh, they had the talent to go to the next level. That's kind of what started it. There's one thing to watch baseball and be a fan of the game. There's a whole other thing to be a scout and be able to actually – pick out talent how do you learn that well you know I think I think in my life uh, I moved a lot when I was a kid I uh, had to evaluate situations really fast I had to evaluate people fairly fast and uh, make good decisions on who do you hang out with as friends and who not to and I think that helped me in my in my scouting career having had that in my background and then you know and then playing uh, as far as I did being able to watch the other players and, and I felt like I used my intellect to help me beat other players in college and stuff like that and so I was always a person observing even when I was in pro ball I mean I could tell you I remember and it really wasn't a hard read uh, in the Midwest League I, I pitched a game and I actually got the win and the pitcher that faced us I, I could tell you he's going to be a big leaguer right away it was easy he was a 19 year old guy by the name of Greg Maddox and so I've heard of him. Yeah, you think everybody, I think <laughs> I think we all know who he is, right? So that's what I mean. It wasn't a hard read, right? But for me, it was kind of natural. I was sitting in the bullpen and I would watch. And you know, when I look back, I'm like, oh, that guy's going to make it. That guy's not. And it just was a natural fit. And I think it's, you know, you read a, have to read a lot of things. And I think throughout my whole life, uh, I think even teaching school, when a student walks in the classroom, you have to be able to evaluate are they happy, sad, good mood, not a good mood, you know. Are there problems at home? Not problems at home. There's a lot of things that you evaluate, and, and in order to make good decisions on players, a lot of the similar things. You have to be able to look at all the variables and figure them out, and I think that's what's helped me. So when you see a 19-year-old Greg Maddox and you say, that guy's going to make it, can you tell at that early of an age that he's not only going to make it, but he's going to be great? I think you can. I mean, I, I think, you know, what a lot of people don't realize about Greg, because you hear nowadays, oh, this guy throws like Greg Maddox, and he'll be throwing 86, 88. <laughs> And I tell our young scouts, no, no, no. Greg Maddox was 90-94 on the old Jugs gun when I saw him pitch. And he had a really nasty slider and just the way he went about it. I really think you can tell a player's got a chance to be really great at that age. Now, are you going to be 100% accurate? No, but I do think you can tell that. If you were 100% accurate, then the first pick of the draft would all be Hall of Famers, right? That's right. Uh, you went on to become an area scout with the Orioles from 1990 to 92. How challenging is life as a young scout? How challenging is it? Yeah. It, it was really challenging. Um, I don't think people realize sort of the lifestyle that a young scout leads. No, you know, and for us, I mean, it was a total upheaval. I mean, I, my wife and I were young, and we moved from New Mexico to Arizona. Uh, she doesn't have a support system now. She doesn't have any friends in, the, you know, in Phoenix where we moved to. And you have that challenge along with trying to go see players and figure them out. And, you know, my biggest challenge, okay, where do I start? <laughs> you know, I, now I got this four states that I have to be responsible for and back then keep in mind you didn't have the publications with all the rankings you didn't have the Twitter you didn't have all the technology that you have nowadays where you can go gather all this stuff and when I started the way you did it you had a high school book with all the high schools you had a college book with all the colleges and I, I wrote a, a pretty generic letter to all the coaches and I sent a letter out and asked them hey do you have any players you think can move to the next level and got all the responses back that's how you know, nuts and bolts basic it was when I started. How many times did you get a letter from a coach who said, oh, yeah, I got this kid, you go there, and you said, well, you may think he, you may think he can take it to the next level. I assume coaches all think a lot more of their own kids than, uh, than maybe others do. Yeah, you know what? I had that happen a lot. I had it happen more than you would realize, and that's great because you know the coach is trying to support his players. Uh, but what I was able to do was cross-reference because I would always ask the coach, is there somebody that you play against that's a good player? 
And so what you would get back, you might get a kid's name 10 times by 10 different coaches. And, if, and then you started getting a feel, okay, I better go see this guy. Um, but yes, more than uh, hundreds of times, kid <laughs> couldn't play. Yeah, and then you're saying, not really, at the major league. Really I'm glad I drove three hours that. each way for this, right? right? And when I say couldn't play, I mean, you know, the thing I love about the game and the thing that we need to understand, they all can play. You know, when a scout says he couldn't play, it means he couldn't play necessarily at the major league level. Um, but for me, I respect all the kids that are playing the game, giving it their best, all the parents that are there. And, and one of the things, you know, uh, I think every parent should always be proud of their kid forever, however far he plays. You joined the Padres as a West Coast supervisor in 93 to 95, served in the same role, back with the Orioles again from 96 to 2001. As you're going through those uh, eight years in that role, what were your career aspirations at that point? You know, my my career aspirations, when I first got into scouting, I really didn't understand the dynamics of how the front office even worked, to be honest. I, I didn't realize that you had a general manager and then you had a scouting director, farm director. I mean, I kind of knew from playing we had a farm director, a scouting director, but I didn't, I didn't understand how it worked. Uh, I just knew that uh, scouting seemed to be something I wanted to try to do. And, and a former manager of mine, Manny Estrada, is the one that called and said, hey, there's a job opening with the Orioles. I think you'd be a great scout. You should apply for it. And that's what I did. So when I applied for it, I didn't have a, any feel for the dynamics of how the front office works. Um, now, by, by the time I got into 95, 96, I started understanding it more. And, and I would say probably around 1997 or 8, somewhere in there, um, through my mentors and people that I work with, like uh, John Cox and Gary Nichols and Gordon Goldsbury, a lot of people I started realizing, you know, I'd love to be a scouting director someday. And that's when it started changing for me once I got a feel for it. You joined the Dodgers in 2001 as director of amateur scouting, getting that, getting yes. to that level. Uh, five years later, you're promoted to assistant general manager. You're heading up amateur and international scouting. Uh, eventually, add a vice president title in 2011. Uh, I mentioned the, the differences between scouting domestic players and international players. What's, what's the biggest difference when you're looking at kids in high school and college in the U.S. and a 15 or 16 year old kid right. in the Dominican or, or even, you know, a player in Japan? Well, those are, those are really great questions, Mark. Uh, the one thing I will say is, is always in my, you know, my amateur career where we were, it was a lot based on where we picked in the draft. We were always, we were looking at a lot of times high school players. So, uh, and I think if you look at the history of my dress, I drafted a lot of 17, 18 year old players. So, for me to transition over to the international wasn't quite as hard as it might have been for somebody else just because I'm used to looking at the younger player. I'm used to looking at the, the younger high school player that he's the greatest player on the field and the competition could be awful. Where at the collegiate level, if you're solely scouting the collegiate player, competition's closer and they're, you know, it's a little bit different dynamic. And so it was an easy transition for me to go internationally and see it. But, um, it's very much a challenge nowadays, especially because they can sign at 16 and you're, you're actually seeing them play at 13 and 14 years of age. And trying to project that and predict that is is incredibly, incredibly tough. I mean, they haven't grown into their bodies yet. You don't know how, you don't know what their final body's going to look like. Are they going to be 5'7 or 6'2? Or, of course, Jose Altuve is proving that it doesn't really matter how tall you are. But, <laughs> right. uh, you know, I would imagine that looking at, at, at younger kids, 13, 14, 15 years old, you're not only projecting the talent, but you're trying to project what's their body going to look like at some point. No here. question. And the difference in, you know, from the United States to, say, Latin America, some of the things, you know, the kids over here will play in leagues. You actually have more data to draw from because they've played in leagues over here since the time they're little. Pee Wee League, Little League, whatever you want to call it, and travel ball and everything else. So you have, you, you, you develop a database on their history of how they perform from when they're little. A lot of times in the Latin countries, they're not playing in leagues or anything like that. It's more showcase baseball, and they're working out in academies and stuff like that. And then you also have more access to, you know, their background, mom, dad, everything else. And, and you do that in Latin America, too, and you get to know their parents and everything else, too. But not it's not as clear-cut and easy to, to sort out as it is here in the United States sometimes. And so I think that makes the dynamic over there, you know, a little bit tougher. Uh, from that angle, um, I think that they have different challenges in both. I mean, here in the United States, the the players, uh, you know, are 
constantly going to school and they have a lot of things to do and they are in Latin America too but I think they do a lot more academy work in Latin America than they do here and it's become more prevalent here than it was in the past um, but um, definitely a huge challenge <clears throat> and then you know different dynamic and in, in different cultures you know Japanese culture is different than Latin American culture different than necessarily the culture over here and so you have to have a feeling for um, a culture too when you're when you're looking at players and one of the things that I always try to caution our scouts and and people about is don't uh, make a make a bad judgment call misunderstanding of culture you know because culture can come into play too uh, I was going to get to this later but was, since you mentioned it among the international players that have worked out quite well for the Dodgers that you helped bring in Yasiel Puig, uh, Hyunjin Ryu, Hiroki Kuroda those are some guys who have had pretty good careers over here What's the biggest concern when you bring over a high-profile player, and not one of the necessarily 16-year-olds, but a high-profile player from another country and try to throw him into the big league atmosphere? Well, I'll use the two guys as examples. <clears throat> the, the biggest challenge is each, each is so individual. And it's almost like when you're evaluating a player, no matter where you come from, everything is always individual-oriented. Um, with Hiroki Kuroda, it was, to me, an easy call. You know, I'd gone over there, I'd seen him pitch a number of times. He was always a professional, a gamer, had all the pitches, had the stuff, um, the way he competed. And you had a complete track record of years of this guy doing it in Japan at a very high level. Um, Yasiel Puig was quite the opposite. You know, I mean, I never even really knew much about the name until that summer. Pops up, go see him in Mexico at a workout. You don't even get to see him hit in a game anything we had live BP and that was basically it and he was honestly out of shape <clears throat> um, you don't have the same background the same comfort factor there were different challenges I knew Hiroki um, wouldn't have trouble adjusting over here my biggest worry was would he adjust to the to the baseball here because the baseball is a little bit different and that sometimes a Japanese player has that um, but I knew <clears throat> he would not have any issues adjusting from that standpoint with Yasiel I knew that he would have issues that he's had in his past and stuff, or you'd have to be careful with it. And we tried to address that early when I was in L.A. because his personality is totally different than Hiroki's. <laughs> Just you a know. little. Yeah. <laughs> it's like about as polar opposite as you can get. I covered Kuroda for a few years in New York, and right. I, they're about as polar opposite as you can Correct. get. Correct. And so you're, you have different worries with each player, and Yasiel has a chance to be a great player. Um you know, but it all depends on what Yasiel feels like doing. And here's a young player, and it's not just Yasiel, it's any kid coming from, uh, say, Cuba, for example. Um, you know, really, uh, they can't just go out and eat a steak anytime they want, and this and that. There's so many little intricacies that we take for granted in the United States they don't know about. Like, I remember, I think it was in the minor leagues, he went to the stands to get a, a, during the game to get a burger. <laughs> <clears throat> oh, he could do that in Cuba. Right, but you can't do that here, and that's what I mean. There's cultural differences too. The way he tends to play a little brash and a little loud, and I think some of that's cultural driven a little bit more than say a Japanese player is, is geared a little bit different way. But I think um, so. You have to understand where the player is coming from and realize is he is he going to is is he doing the right things as a person? Are they a good person? Those are the things that you hope that they can do. And I think Yasiel. Um, has done really good things in, in Major League Baseball, but I do think that some of the th the concerns of um, learning the country, renting a car, driving too fast here, coming into a lot of money at an early age for any player, whether they're from Cuba, United States, wherever it can be tough, those are all challenges you worry about. You oversaw the draft for the Dodgers for many years. We discussed before the draft is an inexact science. Uh, so aside from the obvious talent that you and your scouting department sees on the field, what else do you look for most when you're looking at players for the draft? Well, I think one of the things that for the draft for me, there's, there, I think you could get cl as close to getting 100% accurate as you can get if, you could, if we could lock down all the variables. It's like, it's not rocket science, but if you're trying to cure cancer, if we, if we can ever figure out what are all the variables causing cancer, we can cure it. If we could figure out what are all the variables to, make a play, to help a player become a major leaguer or not, we would have 100% accuracy. We just can't lock down all those variables. But some of the variables that I found were important was, you know, totally the background. I looked at it like, um, um, I call it good choices. What kind of choices has this player made in his life? What kind of choices has the family made in their life? I think those things kind of come into play and help, and help players succeed. Because obviously, 
I've seen a lot of players with great physical talent not make it. And I think you look in their background with a lot of them that don't make it in that category, they, you'll, you're going to see variables in their life, something in their life, whether it be their background, their upbringing, how they were raised, how things came about. Were they responsible when they were young? Did they work hard in the classroom? Did they get good grades? All those kind of things come to play in helping you figure out if a player is going to be good or not. Now, obviously, a lot of players come from tough backgrounds and challenges. I came from a very tough background in my life when I grew up. And I'm certainly not saying a kid can't do that because a lot of players have. But he will show you that he's doing that along the way. During your time at the Dodgers, more than 50 selections reached the majors, including eight straight first-round picks. That group included Clayton Kershaw. Did you have a sense, uh, sort of going back to what we talked about with Maddox, did you have a sense of what kind of career Kershaw was going to go on to have? You know, I, I Clayton, at the risk of sounding arrogant, I certainly don't mean to. Uh, that one, I, I, I will tell you, is the best gut feeling I ever had on a player when I went in there to see him. And I certainly thought he would definitely be a, one of the top in the game. Did did I know he would win as many Cy Young awards as he has and everything? I probably wouldn't have tried to guess at that time. But if you would ask me when we were drafting him on draft day, do I think he'll win Cy Young Award a few times? I would have said absolutely. And, and so would my staff. You know, our scouts, it wasn't just me. I had other scouts that liked him and other people in the room that liked him. So, you know, I get a lot of credit for him. But Calvin Jones was the area scout. Uh, I want to mention that. I think Tim Hogren was a cross-checker. Um, uh, Gary Nichols was a cross-checker. Uh, so many people, uh, probably leaving guys out that were involved in the process. But he, it was a lot of us that felt, as a group, he would be a star player. The baseball draft is so different from any other sport just because of the right. sheer size of it, first of all. And right. baseball teams have you know several minor league affiliates. They need to stock up players, et cetera. Um, so I feel like... You're dealing with, number one, a whole lot more players. But you had some success in some of those later rounds as well. Matt Kemp was a sixth-round pick, became an all-star. Russell Martin was a 17th-round pick, became an all-star. When you hit on a guy like that, is that luck? Is it great scouting? Is it some combination of both? I think it depends who you ask. I think if you ask some maybe some competitors, they say luck. <laughs> <laughs> I think, But I think if you were in the process and you saw how he worked it, you would think that was part of the process because – when I, I did this, and I actually um, uh, got this from a friend of mine, he said, you know, I don't understand why we don't work to draft backwards when we get into the room. And, and basically what that is, when you, when you get into the draft room and you get your people down and the week, the week before you prep for the draft, you start talking about, you know, everybody wants to talk about first-round guys, second-round guys, third-round guys, top guys. Well, those are easy to talk about no matter how tired you are or whatever because – they're the exciting players. And he, and he was talking about, you know, <clears throat> and then later you get tired. And so you just kind of start throwing names on the board and you're not as diligent in the lower rounds. And, and I thought about it and I'm like, you know what? The hardest rounds to pick a player out of is the later rounds because that's where the le there's lesser tools and you, do, you see them not as much and everything else. So you really have to be wise and you do it. So basically, we worked our draft backwards. So we would go in the draft room, our first thing. We didn't talk about Clayton Kershaw. We talked about, let's get all the senior signs ranked. All the best seniors in the country, let's hash it out. Let's talk about it. Let's break it down. We didn't just throw them on the board. So there was a thought process in it. And even um, with our catching we're looking to get a catcher late in the round. Who's the best senior sign catcher? And that was we took AJ Ellis one year, and he was the top of our senior sign board. And then we had a category part of our process was look for a player that we that's a position player that we can convert to catch because catching is hard to find. That was our plan going in. Every scout had to give me somebody from their area they thought might be able to be a catcher. Well, Clarence Johns and John Barr gave me Russ Martin's name, and that was part of a process. So. Is there luck that somebody didn't draft them ahead of us? Of course. Or was there a process in place to get them? Absolutely. And I, and I think it's, so it's probably a combination of the two, but I think it's definitely having a plan, having a process, and then having your people out there, you know, carrying that process out. Going through your, the Dodgers draft history, there's a couple of what might have beens that stood out to me. Right. You could probably name them already. Uh, you guys took David Price out of high school in the 19th round, 2004. Took Paul Goldschmidt in the 49th round two years later. Uh, obviously, they both elected to go on and play college ball. They're right. having great careers. Do you ever think about 
what might have been if the Dodgers had been able to sign either of them. Yeah, Mark Melanson. I can go on. There's a few. There's a lot of. Those I, I left there. a few out. You left those, a few out. Those were the two yeah. that Melanson. There was yeah. another one. Uh, uh, Kevin Gosman, right? Yeah. Yes, Gosman. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what's funny, Mark, is uh, a friend sent me. I don't know who did the study. Somebody did a study on on scouting directors, and they did it based on WAR. And I finished really well on the WAR part, but until they took out. They took the war from the players I didn't sign and subtracted them from the war <laughs> players I did sign, and I, and I and I didn't finish well. And I thought it was kind of interesting and kind of funny because um, you'd have to know the process at the time. Um, my outlook was two things. When I was drafting David Price and uh, these guys, I knew my odds of signing them were not good. But I also knew if I could sign them, they got, it's like getting an extra first-round pick. Right. And I knew I might not get a chance to draft him again in three years out of college, which was the case. He went number one overall. So I was trying to make a case to ownership. And I actually did go to ownership at the time and our general manager at the time with, with David and say, hey, I need $2 million to try to sign this guy. I don't know if that would have signed David at the time. Probably not. They were pretty adamant about going to Vanderbilt. But I was trying to build a case for down the road that we're taking the right guys. So later... When I go to ownership and say, I want to go over slot on this player, I built a track record of it. Right. So there was there was a method to taking some of those guys. And then the second factor of it, you look at um, Jock Peterson and Nathan Eovaldi, two guys that made it from the 11th round. One was going to Texas A&M and one was going to USC. Uh, one was supposedly going to take a million dollars and the other one was 750 to a million. Well, we ended up signing uh, the two players for less than that, quite a bit less than that. And so... If you don't make a run at them, you don't get Jock Peterson or Nathan Eovaldi. And we always felt that their talent was better than that, that pick we could have taken. So we tried to, you know, definitely work hard on that. And, again, that's where it goes to the, the scout, knowing the player, spending time with the player. You know, I know Jock Peterson uh, or Sino Hill uh, drafted him and stayed on it. But Larry Barton, a uh, scout, long, long time veteran scout, had helping us. He would call me like every week and tell me, Logan, we got to sign Jock Peterson, got to sign Jock Peterson, and did a great job. And your scouts really worked hard, you know, the scouts really worked hard to get it done. And, you know, it's, you know, it was, to me it was, it's easier to take a guy out of college, you know, you're going to sign, that maybe doesn't have the tools and but isn't going to play past A ball. I'd rather take a shot in getting a guy that can be an impact player. Well, it must be easier to accept and handle that situation when it's a 17th rounder uh, or 19th rounder like Price or a 49th rounder like Goldschmidt. I mean, when I was covering the Yankees, they drafted Garrett Cole in the first round, and he right. didn't sign. Right. So that's got to be a harder thing to yeah, maybe a bigger gamble when it's a first or second round pick that Yeah, if you look historically, you. I always try to take them after the 11th through the – late rounds. I mean, the earliest I think I took was Gossman and didn't sign, and that was, I think, in the sixth round, fifth round. But, yes, generally you try to, to me, I try to take them in a range where um, the percentage of players making it in that pick is real small anyways. And so we tried to take it, you know, somewhere down there. Earlier you mentioned the trip to Mexico when you went to see Puig. Uh, turns out you discovered somebody else while you were there as well. I <laughs> uh, saw Julio Urias for the yes. first time. When you see a kid like that, and nobody else seems to have picked up on him yet, or, right. you know, is there ever a feeling that this must be too good to be true? Well, you know, it was kind of it was kind of a whole surreal time because at that time we had just drafted Corey Seager. I was in the process of negotiating from distance and trying to get Corey signed, and we had had thought we were going to sign a player uh, who's actually in our organization here now in San Diego. Tampa Bay had signed him named Castillo, a left-handed pitcher. We thought we were going to sign him uh, and give him a million and a half. And it turns out the back, you know, it didn't look like that was going to happen. And then we go to Mexico, to Oaxaca, um, to see the catcher, Leon. Uh, Mike Rio did a great job, and he knew them, and he wanted us to go down there and see the catcher, Leon. And, and, and he also knew about Urias, um, you know. Um, but when we went down there, he was throwing outstanding. And there was a lot of te- quite a few teams went in there and saw him too. Uh, the thing with him was... You know, everybody that was worried about his eye, he had a condition or something with his eye that people were worried about, and it didn't bother bother us. It didn't bother me at all. I mean, he was 15 years old, throwing 90, 93, and a good curveball. I mean, it was good at delivery. Um, and the only worry we had, and so far maybe that's 
you know, playing out. We had a worry that he's so good at such a young age. How will it hold up later? And I know the challenges for uh, the farm director at the time, Dijon Watson, you know, when we talked was, how do we police this? He's so good at 16, he can probably pitch in double A, but is that good for him? Is it right. going to hurt his arm? And, you know, that was the challenge of trying to manage that. Cody Bellinger hit one home run his senior <laughs> year of high school. You took him in the fourth round in 2013, and you said that you thought he would develop power. Why? Well, because if you see his dad, who's a firefighter now, Clay, he's a monster of a guy. He's a big guy. He's got the, some of the biggest hands you'll ever see, and you, you may remember Clay from his Yankee sure. days. Um, you know, and I was, and again, that's where I think we were lucky in this sense. It's a home court advantage. I, I live five minutes from them. I live in Gilbert. Uh, Dustin Yount, our area scout at the time, Robin Yount's son, lives here, did a phenomenal job <clears throat> with Cody. And I had actually had a chance to see him play in a Little League tournament when he was 12. And then he played in the College World Series, I mean, the Little League World Series when he was 12. And, you know, this skinny little guy can really swing it. But again, you go back and you look at the bloodlines and you look at the dad and how big and physical he is. And then you also look at the age. The age, Cody was seven, barely 17 when he graduated. He could have been, he could have gone to high school another year. And I think you'd go. And you had like your scout where Dustin Dustin was at every game. You target again, like instead of having Dustin for me, having Dustin try to see a hundred guys in the Arizona New Mexico area. I said I'd rather you be at every one of Dustin's games. And Dustin did a great job being at the games. And so Dustin knew he could throw 88, 92 off the mound. Dustin knew that he could run. Dustin knew he could play center field if he needed to. Um, Dustin knew those things. And then Brian Stevenson was a cross-checker that came in and saw him. And we just constantly had people at his game. And um, like I said, I live in Arizona too. And so I have a batting cage. And he came over to my house and would hit at our batting cage, at my batting cage and stuff. So you get to know the person, the makeup, what he's like. Is he going to work hard? Things like that. And that goes back to some of the stuff we talked about about earlier is is – knowing the background and the choices that people make. And you see, okay, you have a father played in the big leagues, mother, uh, dad's now a firefighter, um, great family, great person. Cody's been a worker, going to keep working. You know, I, you just know he's not going to get into pro baseball and, and be an issue and not work hard and those kind of things and going to get after it. So to me, it wasn't as hard a decision as it sounds. Uh, it, it was a lot of luck that we were close by and, and happened to be there. And I think... Uh, great work on, I, I, I want to give a lot of credit to Dustin Young because he, the thing he did as well as anybody, he gave me the luxury of knowing I could take him in the fourth round because we actually would have taken him in the second round and we actually paid him like a second rounder. But Dustin was at all the games and said, Bogan, the other teams aren't on him that way. There's not a lot of scouting directors coming to see him and things like that. So it gave me a comfort factor. I could let him slide. I assume some of that went into your decision last year to draft his younger brother, Cole. Uh, you said you're big on bloodlines. What is it about a second-generation player that you like? And I also read that you said you've made comparisons in bloodlines with horses and yeah. athletes. <laughs> what, what is it about bloodlines that really stands out for you? Well, I think I think the thing for me, that, <clears throat> the bloodlines thing isn't... Every, I think everybody thinks I mean it like, oh, definitely genetically. And I'm not, I don't necessarily mean it like genetically, although that helps, you know, because we're all a product. If our dad and mom are tall, we're probably going to be tall. So those things do apply for sure. But it, it's more the fact you've been around the game. It's more the fact your dad's been in the game. Your dad's been in the clubhouse. I mean, the Bellinger boys were in the locker room when they were little kids in Yankee Stadium or wherever. So they've been around the game. And the fact that I do believe that um, – there's a family tradition, a family history to uphold. It's just like my own son. My, my son, I will promise you, will give you everything he's got and going to work hard at it because he's been around the game a long time and he's not going to want to let his dad down and he doesn't want to embarrass his dad, so he's going to bust his tail. And that's what happens in, with the, a lot of times with the kids with bloodlines. They, they just have, have an advantage in terms of having been around it and the way they were raised and the way they, they grew up as much as anything. And, and history shows... Um, you know, if you go and look at the percentage of players, kids who are playing in the big leagues, it's pretty high. Speaking of your son, he was drafted last year, 39th round, yes. by your old team, the right. Dodgers. Yes. Uh, he didn't sign. He's playing college ball now. Right. What was your reaction when you found out that, that the Dodgers had drafted your son? Well, you know, I had, I had, I had 
talked to teams before to not draft him because I want you know my son wants to be drafted on his own merits and and him being good um, and I think he knows he wasn't ready to go play professional baseball yet he needs to get bigger stronger and those things and, and it was but when the Dodgers drafted him it was it was pretty awesome because the scouts over there have seen him play since he's little and I think they did it because they see some potential in him uh, but I also think uh, is out of respect to the family and everything. And I, t I took it as a very, uh, we took it as very um, humbling and very positive. I, I, uh, I text Billy Gasparino and thanked him a lot. It meant a lot um, for him to do that. Um, but it's also double-edged sword because it's tough on my son too because people expect him to be a great player and, you know, and stuff. And he busts his tail and works at it. And I think he's got a chance to be a major league player. But he's gonna. He's got a lot of things he's gonna have to work at. He's got to throw better. He's got to hit better. He's got to receive better. There's, you know, like any kid, and that's the hardest part. And what I do, it's it's hard for me to go to games and enjoy it the way a normal parent can, right? Because I know his pluses and minuses as well as anybody, and we're realistic about it. And his dreams of being a major league player, and he's a very smart kid, and I'm proud of him. And I tell him all the time, if you don't play in the big leagues. Or if you don't play professional baseball, or if you quit baseball, I love you the same. It doesn't matter. Going back even as far as 2007, you've interviewed for a few GM jobs, the Astros, the Mets, the Diamondbacks, the Padres, the job that AJ eventually got. What did you learn from those experiences? And is becoming a GM still a career goal for you? Um, I don't like being 0-5. <laughs> I think that's what I am, 0-5, something like that. Um, but uh, just all kidding aside, um, it was a great experience. It was an honor to, to be able to meet the people I met, uh, meet with the ownership groups that I met with and get a chance to talk to them about baseball. Um, not my, it was never my aspiration to be a general manager. I was always prepared to be a general manager, believe I could do the job, but it was never my, like if I don't become a general manager, all my career will be unfulfilled. It's different than a player. As a player, I always wanted to be a major league player. And I feel like I didn't fulfill that. This, if tomorrow my career ended, I feel like I, I fulfilled my goals and, and did as good as I could do in the game, whether I'm a general manager or not. Now, certainly I've always tried to be prepared to be a general manager. And do I think I could do the job? Absolutely. Um, but I think you have to be happy kind of where you're at and what you're doing, too. And that's kind of my mindset at this time. And um, But I, I've learned a lot over the years. I mean, uh, I have a lot of beliefs and things that I think work, but there's a lot of good people I've learned from. You know, and going through those processes, you learn what does somebody that you may be polar opposites from, what do they do right that you're not doing right? And so I learned a lot of things. Uh, how would I do things different? How would I do things better um, from those interviews? And like I said, it was, it was a, um, you know, very, very happy that I had those opportunities to do that. And, you know, like San Diego here, I didn't get the general manager job, but I, but, um, I was very impressed with ownership at the time. They were outstanding, and I think they picked the right person for the GM job, and I'm happy to work for them. So after this successful run with the Dodgers 14 years that we've been talking about, you end up joining the Padres and A.J. Preller as a senior advisor to him and director of pro scouting. What was most appealing about that opportunity for you? Because it was something different. You weren't coming here to be the amateur scouting director. This was a, right. a different situation. Um, yeah, you know what was appealing to me is I, I, I knew there the you know, Andrew and, and Friedman was coming into L.A., and I had nice talks with Andrew, really respect Andrew and, and liked him. Uh, but I also felt like uh, I had worked with A.J. in the past. A.J. had worked in L.A. when I was a scouting director, so we had a relationship. Uh, I had a feel for him and a trust factor. I think uh, my, during my interview process, I really liked Ron Fowler, and I liked Peter Seidler a lot. Uh, I thought their ownership group uh, had their head and heart in the right place and wanting to make San Diego a winner. Uh, and I thought it was a perfect time for me to give it a, give it a different look and, and uh, try to go to San Diego and, and do something special down there. And um, AJ was just so passionate about what he wanted to do and how he wanted to create a winner there. And I knew Andrew was going to have his own, uh, you know, different people that he wanted to hire, his people that he had a feel for. Uh, I think he would have included me in that, but I felt he, he deserved a chance and they deserved a chance to start with their own crew too. And so I think it was just a perfect fit all the way around for me to make the call to do that. So you're a division rival with the Dodgers now. Yes. A team that you played a large role in building. Uh, are there ever mixed emotions for you as you see players that you drafted succeed 
uh, when it's at your own team's expense or, I mean, obviously when the Padres right. play the Dodgers, I'm sure you're not torn at all. What's it like for you last year watching the World Series? Mark, that was, that's very difficult because, um, you know, even people that wanted to do articles or interviews about it, uh, you know, I was very sensitive to it because I'm a Padre, you know, and I love being a Padre. And I know uh, Ron Fowler is as much a San Diegan as you can ever imagine, and, and, uh, and so is Peter Seidler. And I'm 100% loyal to this organization. <clears throat> so it was tough to talk about players from the organ- other, you know, from our rival. But at the same time, I can't totally distance myself from a part of my life, a part of my past that I still feel close to. So, yes, it was extremely hard. And hopefully people understand the, what that would be like. Um, once we're out of the playoffs, yeah, absolutely 100% was I rooting for Clayton Kershaw to pitch great in the playoffs. I want that more than maybe he wants it. Um, well, I shouldn't say that. I was no, going to say that might just, not no, be true. <laughs> it wouldn't be true because Clayton, has got, he's the best competitor you could ever find, and I know he wants it more than anybody. But, yeah, watching those guys, rooting for those guys, Kenley Jansen, Corey, all these guys, yeah, I, I definitely was 100% rooting for them. We know the kind of impact that analytics have had at the major league level and certainly some minor league levels as well. How have they changed the process of amateur scouting? Well, I think, I think they've changed the process of amateur scouting for a, a plus and a minus. And I'll answer that two ways. It depends how they're used. It depends like any tool. I think it can be overused and it can hurt your draft. I think it could be underused and it can hurt your draft. Um, I know the years ago when I first started, the good scouting directors, we, we didn't call it analytics but I never was going to draft a pitcher to, to simplify it. I was never going to draft a pitcher in high school that um, had a, uh, didn't strike out one in inning and he walked a guy in inning. You know, so we were looking at numbers back in the day. I, I wasn't going to draft a high school hitter that couldn't hit over 300 and have a high on base percentage in high school, high in the draft, no matter what his tools were. So I think there's a lot of us that were using statistics a long time ago. We just didn't. We just were not smart enough or didn't do it. We didn't put it in the right boxes, I guess, how you would say, uh, to utilize it. And I think they've refined it, done it, done it a better service than we did, and they've refined it and utilized it even more. Like things that we didn't think about, like now what I think is great, the analytics department can go and give us a list. How, how does this guy hit against the Friday night starters in college? Very valuable information. This guy, you know, is this guy struggling against Friday night starters, but he's hitting better against the kids that pitch on Sunday. Those are really impactful things that you can use. Um, as, you know, strikeout ratios in college. and things. There's so many things that you can use from an analytical standpoint that help you make a better decision. So to me, if you're not using them, you're, you're going to lose out. You're going to make mistakes that you wouldn't make. But I think at, on the flip side of the coin, sometimes analytics gets a little carried away with there's so many formulas, so many ideas, so many things. You have to sort through it and you have to sift through it and go, okay, is this applicable right here? It could be, you know, um, age at the draft. Sometimes people go, okay, player. we all know if a player is 17 years old at the draft and he's performing really well in high school and against older kids, that's great. We know that. But sometimes people will say, well, if he's 19, that's not a good thing. They use it analytically. They say 17-year-old is better than a 19-year-old. But when you ask yourself, what's the ratio? How many 19-year-olds graduate high school and are playing ball? Not as many as probably are 18. So I don't know if that gets too detailed. But I think I think what I say is you have to go in and you have to really evaluate whatever tool you're using from an analytical standpoint, what's the track record of it, does it work, and is it going to be valuable to use here? And so I think if you can do that, um, and I think it's Bill Belichick and the Patriots, I think they have a person that he solely does that. He says, I, I go in and cut out the noise. And there can be noise in analytics. But there's a lot of great stuff in Alex. There can be noise in scouting. Trust me, I cut out a lot of noise from some of my scouts too. So it's not a, it's not a scout or an analytic thing like it's been trying to be portrayed sometimes in baseball. You just basically have to cut out a lot of the stuff from you. Could be your scout or your, or the analytics department. You said that in your opinion, the Padres farm system is deeper than any time you were with the Dodgers. At what point in a player's development do you start really dreaming on big league potential? Uh, I think once, once, man, the minute they get out and they start performing, 
I think if you see a player go out and he's in rookie ball and he starts performing and there's certain numbers, like see it's a hitter, you know, the hitter is hitting for a high average and a high on base and his strikeouts are low and his walks are high and he's showing some doubles and some power numbers, you can really start dreaming on that guy pretty quick. So uh, for me, it starts out at a young, at could be rookie ball level. But I mean, it, but for it to really take full stride when they get to double A and they're, they're showing success in double A's where it, it's kind of, for me, where that's the tipping point. A lot of teams have started to employ full-time people to handle the mental side of the game. Do you think that's an area that maybe was overlooked for a lot of years? Yeah, I do. I think I think so. I think um, you can improve physically. Why can't you improve mentally? I've always felt that, that on the mental side of the game, having mental coaches, whatever it could be, is a plus for the kids. Because in a lot of ways, I felt a lot of the coaches, myself, different people along the way, we, in essence, were trying to do that with kids along the way. But I think it's important now that you have professional people that really know how to do it and can come in and help people do it. I think it's great. When the Padres traded James Shields in 2016, uh, FoxSports.com's analysis of the trade said that the team didn't acquire any high-end talent in the deal. <laughs> now Fernando Tatis Jr. is ranked as your number four prospect, number 52 overall in the game, according to our right. friends at MLB Pipeline. Is this a good example of why trades of this nature, especially with really younger prospects, uh, shouldn't be judged right away? I think it's a perfect example, and no disrespect to Fox. I mean, I've made mistakes. They made a mistake, obviously. <laughs> because There was no byline where I would have called out the writer. It just right, said exactly, FoxSports.com. Exactly. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think I think whether, you, whether it be the draft or be – I have a saying all the time. I tell people, you have to let things play out. Because I remember um, one year, my it was my first, second draft. Um, they were talking about how uh, a team took a college player and he pitched in the he pitched in the big leagues that year. A college pitcher pitched in the big leagues and how they were smart and the teams that took the high school pitcher were dumb. Basically, was what was said. And that pitcher never got to the big leagues again. And that year, I had taken Chad Billingsley, who had really eight pretty good years in the big leagues. So you gotta let it play out sometimes. Uh, in recent years, the Padres hired two former Dodgers pitchers, Takashi Saito and Hideo Nomo. Uh, to work in the front office. What can guys like that bring to a front office? Well, they both bring d- a little different. I mean, uh, Nomo-san, and I, I like to call him Nomo-san, the Japanese thing, he, he's a, a very intelligent guy. You know, he was a very serious pitcher over here and didn't interact a lot, um, but he, he's unbelievably in- intelligent with his takes on pitching and what to look for and what you do and things like that. And he brings... Um, a charisma and everything to the to the game. Like when he goes out in the bullpen and he talks with our young pitchers and stuff like that. To me, he can he can help us in a scouting standpoint because he actually has a pretty good feel for evaluating talent. He knows what it takes, and yet he's really good in being able to work with young players and help our young pitchers, especially learning, uh, you know, split finger, which he threw really well. And Takashi, <clears throat> he's a little more of the front office type. Uh, Takashi brings a lot of energy, everything. Good evaluator too. Um, but he can bring the opposite side of the spectrum from Nomo. Nomo was a star over here, right? A, you know, right away came over earlier. Uh, Takashi was more at the tail end of his career, even in Japan at 36, and kind of rejuvenated coming over here when we signed him, and was a National League All Star closer. And so he had a myriad of levels he went from. So I think he can bring that to the table when he's talking to players and stuff like that. And he's just a terrific person as well. And they give us a presence in Japan. We. We want to up our presence in Japan. We want to make more of an impact. We think San Diego is a great place for Japanese players, and that was part of our process, too, to improve and, and hire good people that can improve our presence in, in Asia. Jerry Depoto is the only current general manager that played in the big leagues. Why do you think it's trended that way, where big leagues are being populated by more and more Ivy Leaguers or guys who you know maybe topped out in college ball, uh, and have been working in front offices as interns and working their way at the baseball operations department, uh, while former players really haven't necessarily gone the front office route quite as often? You know, that's a great question. I think a lot of the Ivy Leaguers learn from us guys. No, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm, I'm kidding. Um, it's a great question. I think that they brought a fresh look. I think that, you know, like just being around AJ, I will tell you, he's got the best memory in the game. I, I don't know anybody with the memory that A.J. Preller has. Uh, my memory can't even come close to matching it, and I think I have a good one. Um, 
you know, I, I, I think... I say you've remembered an awful lot for this interview. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to, but he, he will remember exact date, name, time, place, everything. Um, you know, it's a great question. I think that, you know, in, in like anything in life, you get trends. Trends start head one way, and, you know, the trend is to hire a bright, young, energetic person. And I, I think that, you know, the general manager's job is very difficult. It takes You have to wear a lot of hats. You're dealing with a lot of um, managing people, the media, everything that you have to deal with day to day. And, these, you know, some of these guys are just unbelievably bright, articulate. Um, they, they're sponges. They're really good at taking, well, okay, what does Logan White know and what does this person know and this person and being able to take it and, and put it into effect and, and, and in essence make it their own sometimes. And um, I have nothing but respect for the guys that have been able to come in and do that. I think partially too, some of them are maybe slanted towards their goal. It's their goal to be a general manager. Like I said, I was being honest. My, my goal was never to be a general manager. Now, I think I could do it. My goal was always to prepare to do it, but never was my goal. And I think some guys have that goal that that's what they want to do. And they then they're very good at being able to figure out all the avenues and learn all the nuances that they need to know in a front office. And they handle that well. Logan White, Padres Senior Advisor to the General Manager and Director of Player Personnel. Thank you very much for your time. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, Mark. I really appreciate it. Enjoyed it myself. Many thanks to Logan White for taking the time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. Our next episode falls during All-Star Week, so what better time to chat with an executive from the host team, the Washington Nationals? I'll sit down with Assistant General Manager Bob Miller, who is widely recognized for knowing the game's rules on and off the field better than anybody else in the sport. We'll discuss how that knowledge helped Washington land Trey Turner, discuss his stops in Arizona and Cincinnati, and much more. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts, Art19, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, so be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about Executive Access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinstein. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.